Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you again for helping us get past 30 million downloads here on the Lincoln Project Podcast. You have us at the top of the charts and I cannot say thank you enough, but I can ask you for one more favor. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell people that are interested in the pro-democracy movement, tune in, hear what we have to say, share it with your friends, share it with your family. I want to say thank you. And now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by award-winning journalist David Enrich, the business investigations editor at The New York Times. Prior to The Times, he was a reporter and editor at The Wall Street Journal, spending time in both New York and London. His latest book is Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice, which is available wherever fine books are sold, and let me tell you, is absolutely worth the read. Today, he's coming to us from just north of New York City. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm reading this. I'm reading electronically, so I have my little highlight thing I do. And I think I counted at least half a dozen examples of their like, well, everybody deserves representation regardless of how people feel about our clients publicly, right? Or at any given time in politics or publicity or whatever. And it seems like the sort of get out of jail free card, so to speak, for a lot of these big law firms, which in this book admittedly focuses a lot, but not exclusively on Jones Day. I think that's actually a good place to start because, as you put it, this is what a lot of law firms use as kind of the all-purpose excuse to not only defend the work they're doing, but to really deflect any questions or scrutiny about the work they're doing. And it's true, of course, that everyone who is accused of wrongdoing under the American legal system and justice system is entitled to zealous legal representation. No one disputes that at all. The question is whether everyone in all circumstances, so not just when someone's accused of a crime, but when someone is, say, trying to lobby against government regulations or trying to win elective office or trying to intimidate a witness or trying to intimidate local officials from implementing regulations, do you deserve representation? Are you entitled to representation for those types of services? And I think that is a much more complicated question. And I think the answer is sometimes no, you do not, or at least you deserve lots of scrutiny for providing that kind of legal services. But it's a debate that law firms are generally really, I think, reluctant to get into. And so they kind of wave their hand at this and say, look, you're attacking the notion that everyone is entitled to legal representation. And I'm not. And I don't think anyone is. And I want to come back to that particular issue later. So let me talk, though. You go through the beginning. You know, you start with Jones Day, you know, a firm in Cleveland, Ohio, right? That's its roots. But then you get into how law firms became what we know of them today. Not only the big law firms like Skadden Arps and Jones Day, but also all of the plaintiffs' attorneys, right? I was just driving back from California the other day, and when you hit Las Vegas, basically central Las Vegas, the Strip, there must be, Dave, in that two or three-mile stretch of I-15, no fewer than 60 plaintiffs' attorneys' law firms. And they all have, you know, it's either 
the big picture of the guy or, you know, really tough names. And for those of us who weren't sort of cognizant of this stuff before it occurred, it's interesting to see that there was a time before plaintiff's attorneys, you know, were you injured? Were you at Camp Lejeune? And also pharmaceutical ads, right, that you can't swing a dead cat and not hit at this point either. I agree. I think it's really interesting to note that it was not always the case that highways were blanketed by ads for lawyers. And, you know, TV commercials were not always a thing where you could see ads for drug companies. And this all stems from a series of kind of long forgotten but really important Supreme Court decisions in the mid to late 1970s, where drug companies and law firms, among others, argued that they basically had a First Amendment right to advertise their services. And at the time, especially in the legal community, lawyers were essentially prohibited from not just advertising their services, but in promoting themselves in any way. And so local bar associations literally said, you cannot take out advertisements in the local newspaper, much less run an ad on TV or along a highway billboard. And the idea was to insulate the legal profession from the kind of commercial pressures that afflict normal industries. And the problem was that one of the side effects of that, or maybe not the side effect, maybe one of the intended effects of that was it basically made it impossible for upstart lawyers or law firms to compete for business because they couldn't advertise the services they were providing. They couldn't compete on price, things like that. So the Supreme Court ruled that the prohibitions on attorney advertising violated law firms or lawyers' First Amendment rights to express themselves. And the decision came in the late 1970s, and it almost instantly ignited an arms race among lawyers and law firms. And initially, it was just to kind of promote themselves and to run ads and to issue press releases, even to talk to the media. But it quickly kind of metastasized into something that I think was much more profound and which was not really what the intent was of the people who challenged these restrictions in the first place. And the result was that law firms all of a sudden were free to promote themselves in any way they wanted. And that included by soliciting business from specific industries or specific clients. And it was kind of the opening incident in what became, I think, a, a pretty vicious cycle that was spinning where law firms became increasingly profit hungry, increasingly big. And it really changed the profession almost overnight. Well, and there is at one point, I think it's later in the book where it might be a Jones Day partner says, like, we're in the profit making business, right? <laughs> like not in the legal profession business. We're in the billable hours business. But I want to go back to that court decision. Now, it might have been two separate ones, but one of them, the only dissenting vote was a guy named Rehnquist, not historically known as, you know, a liberal justice, right? This was a arch conservative by the standards of his day anyway. And he said, this is going to lead to nothing but bad stuff. It was one of the most kind of far reaching decisions of the court's recent history, I think, dissenting opinions, I should say. And he correctly predicted that opening the floodgates to ads for law firms, for drug companies, for things like that would fundamentally change the way that these professions that had been about, in particular, the legal profession, which had been about kind of honesty, integrity, the search for truth, would very quickly become about trying to spin people and trying to sell people on their services, and that it would turn this revered, sacred profession into something much more crass and commercialized than what lawyers of previous generations had strived for. I was thinking about this as you go through Jones Day and its docket of various clients, you know, RJR, Big Tobacco, the gun industry, Purdue Pharma, you know, Marathon Oil. And I'm reminded of that movie, uh, Thank You for Smoking. They literally represented the merchants of death 
And I remember there's a scene in that movie where I can't remember the guy who plays the lobbyist. He's the tobacco lobbyist, and he's on the Santa Monica Pier with his son. And his son said, Dad, what does it take to be a lobbyist? And he says, well, son, it takes a certain moral flexibility. And, you know, it's interesting that I'm almost sure, David, that when a lawyer, a newly minted attorney takes the oath of the legal oath, whatever it is, there has to be high standards, you know, nothing of the prurient interest, all these other things. But it's sort of like you made it through law school, you made it through the bar. Now, all bets are off. Do what you want. You know, speaking of vicious cycles, this is another one. And people go into law school they often go deep into debt to attend law school and they come out of law school and they need money. And so I think there's this kind of cycle that spins where people make this kind of agreement with themselves almost that I'm going to go work at a big corporate law firm for a few years, help pay off my debts, and then I'm going to get out and do something that I feel will improve the state of the world and put my lawyering to kind of a better social use. And it's hard to get out. Money is appealing. And it, I think once you start making deep into the six figures, it can be very hard to extricate yourself. But I think this kind of comes back to what you were saying at the outset, which is that the legal profession from a very young age and tends to indoctrinate students that there's nothing wrong with working for a tobacco company because, you know, under the American legal system, everyone is entitled to zealous representation and even people who commit murders or companies that kill their customers. And I think that starts to break down pretty quickly when you look at the actual services that a big law firm like Jones Day is providing to a company like R.J. Reynolds or a gun company like Smith & Wesson or an opioid company like Purdue Pharma. And when you realize that it's not just about defending them when they're accused of killing their customers, it's also about helping them kind of systematically weaken regulations, intimidate local officials, and harm people who are trying to seek justice against them. But I do think that it becomes very intoxicating for young lawyers that they can go make money and it's viewed within this prism of we're just part of a legal system that does not kind of take a moral stance on representing, quote unquote, bad clients. But there's a difference between the letter and the spirit of the law. And these attorneys and these firms tend to stretch the letter of the law as far as they possibly can. And the spirit of the law is sort of thrown out. Doesn't even matter. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of examples that speak to that. Look, these lawyers are good. The book is not about lawyers doing their jobs poorly. It's about lawyers doing their jobs very well. And one of the things they're really good at is kind of tiptoeing right up to the line, but not crossing it. And that's a legal line. It's an ethical line. And, you know, I think that that is something that a lot of people you talk to who have been in the legal profession for decades, in some cases, really think that that is one of the worst things that could have happened to the American justice system, that lawyers you know, with some notable exceptions, no longer view what they are doing as being in pursuit of honesty and truth. They are trying to win at all costs. And often that means using tactics either inside a courtroom or more often outside a courtroom that would really, I think, have made their ancestors cringe when they see what they're doing. No, look, I mean, you referenced the lawyer letter. The lawyer letter, I have both been on the sending end of them and I have been on the receiving end of them. Two years ago, just about, we got one from Jared and Ivanka's law firm when we put a big billboard up in Times Square. And like we knew we had him dead to rights, but the guy, I guarantee you, like they said, you're going to send these guys a letter, yada, yada, yada. And they did it. And we're like, you'd take your letter and shove it where the sun don't shine because we, we, we knew we were on solid ground. But like for other people who weren't sort of maybe as outspoken as we were, that stuff probably works. And why wouldn't it? Because when you get a letter like that, you know, if you have any sense of how this stuff works, they got all the money. 
they got all the lawyers, they got all the help, and I got me. And me is not a lot in the face of these guys. Yeah, I think it really comes down to it's less about kind of people being confident in their convictions, but it often boils down to just money, right? Like there's a bunch of examples of Jones Day and other law firms sending kind of vacuous, very flimsy letters to, for example, a municipality. Like I detail this in the book. There's a, a story about a small town in Massachusetts that was trying to restrict the sale of flavored tobacco products. Jones Day, Noel Francisco, who would go on to become Trump's solicitor general, writes this letter to the town officials warning them of litigation. The letter, according to a bunch of lawyers, independent lawyers who've reviewed this, is really, it was not a strong argument, but the mere act of sending that letter to a small town that doesn't have a whole lot of resources is terrifying. And, you know, they look at the letter, they see the list of offices all over the world that Jones Day has. They Google Jones Day's name, see it's one of the biggest law firms in the world. And you have a choice then as a, an elected official in a small town, which is, are you going to kind of roll the dice and call the law firm's bluff? Or are you going to take the prudent course of action and kind of reconsider this regulation you were proposing? And not always, but I think most of the time, the reason people send these letters is because they tend to work and it causes public officials or journalists in some cases to kind of pull their punches and think about whether this is really a fight that they want to have. And it's an extremely effective and cost-effective way for law firms to, frankly, intimidate people into, you know, basically pulling their punches. No, look, it's a couple hours for associates to write it and six minutes for the partner to sign it and the cost of a FedEx. That's exactly right. And there's another example of this that's also in the book that involves some journalists who are writing a book that involved the law firm Paul Weiss, which is, a you know, it's a Democratic-leaning law firm. And Paul Weiss really pays a lot of lip service, at least, to the ideals of kind of progressivism. And yet when two journalists were shining what looked like a pretty unfavorable spotlight on them, this law firm resorted to the same heavy-handed tactics that we've seen these kind of corporate law firms that tend to tilt right using. So this is not about left versus right. I think this is about People in positions of great power that are not accustomed to getting a whole lot of outside scrutiny tend to come down like a ton of bricks, kind of betraying the ideals that they often speak about just in the interest of exerting their power and controlling what is said about them or how they're regulated in some cases. Well, and I remember when I lived in California, I believe there was either a piece of legislation or a ballot measure that was going through or attempting to go through that would tax services, service providers like it would anything else. And it was interesting when you brought up the small town in Massachusetts, you know, when the astroturfing began, right? Well, this is going to increase the cost of a gym membership. This is going to increase. No, the truth is, is that the biggest law firms in California didn't want to charge sales tax, I guess, as it were, you know, on their billable hours. They saw themselves outside the system. And so it's weird, Dave, to have this situation where you have, as you said, power. And I think power is central to a lot of your book is they are incredibly powerful arbiters of law, justice, regulation, but want little to no scrutiny, oversight or accountability for themselves. I think that hits the nail on the head. I mean, it's accustomed to not operating with a whole lot of scrutiny. I mean, they have become masters, not just at you know, writing nasty letters, but I, I think also cultivating journalists in particular a lot over the years. And some of the best sources that a lot of reporters, myself included, over the years have had are senior partners at big corporate law firms. And this is something I've kind of wrestled with myself as a journalist over the years, which is that, you know, you develop these sources, they're very helpful. They provide lots of information, you know, they provide you scoops, they provide you great kind of inside the boardroom perspectives. 
And yet some of that is about them trying to advocate for their clients' interests and kind of spin things, which is understandable. But I think also a big part of it is that these lawyers recognize that by cultivating journalists, it makes it less likely and less appealing for those journalists to turn their scrutiny onto these law firms. I think it's no accident that the legal industry, despite being you know, worth many, many, many billions of dollars, gets a tiny fraction of the media attention and media scrutiny that other similarly sized industries just typically receive. It's interesting for in a second as an aside, the legal community and the media together, because they are both candidly people who feel like they have a role in American life, but also have a very strong, not only self-defense mechanism, but mutual defense mechanism as well. Yeah. You know, historically, there is in the legal profession a view that they don't deserve scrutiny because they are not actually an industry. They're a profession. And it is something that because of its supposed adherence to these kind of American ideals and the central role that zealous legal representation for even the most heinous offenders plays in our justice system, I think that there's an argument that has been very persuasive to a lot of people, including many journalists over the years, that this is an industry that maybe doesn't deserve quite the same amount of scrutiny that any other industry would receive. And I think, frankly, like the media is almost the opposite, right? Like a lot of us journalists write a lot about the media because we find it fascinating and it's kind of inside baseball for us. And I think that you don't have that same level of interest in the legal profession, in part because lawyers have done such a good job of casting themselves as outside of a world that deserves scrutiny. Well, also, though, you know, you have how many fictional legal heroes and villains did a John Grisham cook up in the 90s? Many, right? And you could sympathize and empathize with the good guys. And you could absolutely, because you'd probably seen them in on the news or in real life, identify who the bad guys and bad gals were because they were modeled on people like Jones Day who do this stuff, right? It's like, okay, my baby suffered significant brain damage based on bacteria, allegedly, I should say, right? Because they were found not to be at fault, allegedly from Abbott baby formula, right? The twin doesn't take the formula, doesn't get sick, put the victim on trial, right? lower income, checkered family history, history of drugs, history of drinking. And now you have a federal jury in Sioux City, Iowa, with 20 lawyers, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of discovery, hours and hours of depositions, where these folks, to your point, they're very, very good at what they do, right? Understand exactly how to go up against a guy who's doing his best for these people, right? With a child who's never going to be okay. And look, this goes back to something I've talked about on the show previously, right, which is when you're a young Republican operative, it's just win, just win. Nothing else matters. Yeah. And that's something that I think is pounded into the heads of young law firm associates, probably even before they're at the law firm, probably when they're in law school for a lot of them, that your obligation is to your client and you need to do what is in the client's best interest. Everything else is a distraction. And Jones Day has been working on these types of tactics, perhaps more than any other law firm in the country, for decades. I mean, they started representing RJR, the tobacco company, in the mid-80s at a time, even then, when it was becoming very, very clear that cigarettes were deadly and that nicotine was addictive. And they were willing to kind of argue the other side of that, I think, very disingenuously. But I think that conditioned an entire generation of lawyers at firms like Jones Day that 
you know, you can make arguments, even outside of court, you can make arguments that are disingenuous, if not dishonest. And not only are you not going to get punished for that, you're going to get remunerated just in this incredibly lucrative way. I mean, Jones Day for a long while, I think something like 20% of their annual income was coming from representing this one client, RJR, is $100 million a year. And that provides, obviously, I think, a very powerful direct incentive to do whatever it takes to make that client happy and to keep them happy. So let's talk about Jones Day internally for a second. So this is a firm that grows and it grows and then it sort of grows exponentially, I guess, in the 90s. But it's got a unique structure, which is, first of all, it's not a limited liability partnership like a lot of law firms are. Everybody's a partner. The partners are all owners, right? They all have a stake in the upside and downside financially. But it's run by one person and up to now, one guy. You know, over the series of years, it's always been the managing partner is literally like God inside the walls of this place. Yeah, this is a person, they just announced the person who will become their eighth managing partner starting next year. And they've had seven people over the 125 year history of the place. They've all been white men and they wield virtually unfettered power within the firm. I mean, they make hiring and firing decisions. They set compensation. They make the decisions about where to open or shut offices. They have the final say on which clients to represent or how to represent them. They even pick, the managing partner even picks his own successor. And they write it in a letter and keep it in a, in a, like a safety deposit box. It's like something out of a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a very unusual culture. And I think that, look, this is one of those things where I, when I first started learning about this firm, I was kind of, I had kind of a visceral reaction to it. But then I, the more I thought about it, it's not clear to me how bad or good that actually is. I mean, I think the argument in favor of this kind of very unilateral power structure at a law firm is that it enables the firm to make swift kind of bold decisions. And that, you know, that cuts both ways, depending on what those decisions are. What's clear is that in the past 20 years, the managing partner has been a guy named Steve Brogan, who is very conservative. And he has not been shy at all about, I think, putting his legal philosophical stamp on the place, but also an ideological stamp increasingly on the place, at least when it comes to some of the most senior lawyers and the most influential practice groups at the place. And it's not like any other major law firm that has a much more kind of consensus building approach led by committees and where people tend increasingly nowadays to have a fairly diverse group of people making these decisions. This is, again, one man who is ultimately responsible for all the decisions. And Steve Brogan's defenders say he delegates a lot of people. He has a lot of women and people of color in the upper ranks around him. And I think that's true. But at the end of the day, the law firm has increasingly come to resemble him in terms of the positions it publicly takes on and in terms of the people in his inner circle. And lo and behold, the guy who he just named as his successor is one of his good family friends who has, you know, went to Notre Dame with him, has been in the Washington, D.C. office of what had been a Cleveland law firm for basically his entire career. And it's quite clear that he picked someone with whom he has not just a shared kind of background, but also a similar ideology, I think. Before we get into Jones Day and Trump, I, I want to talk a little bit about many of these longstanding white shoe firms as we're now in the third decade of the 21st century. Because just as an aside, I have friends that are attorneys, and it's interesting to hear how many firms, you know, like the new associates are like, I want to make this much money. I want this much time off. I'm not going to bill 500 hours a month. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Oh, by the way, I'm going to have a baby. And when I have my baby, you're going to pay for everything while I have my baby. 
And the older lawyers are just like, what is going on? Now, look, I have a little bit of that having come up in a not a rougher and tumbler time in politics, but it certainly in politics where, you know, it was our way or the highway. Do your job, shut up or get out. And I'm wondering if you're seeing in your research for this book, but also in your other reporting that the sort of under 40 or maybe even under 30 new associate crowd doesn't dig a lot of the stuff that's been going on for 100 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's unquestionably true. And there is a huge generational clash, I think, going on inside, frankly, inside many big institutions, right? We deal with this at the New York Times, if I'm honest about this. There's, I mean, I think many institutions are kind of dealing with people who, I don't know quite where it cleaves, but it's like maybe people under 40 versus over 40. And obviously there are millions of exceptions to this rule, but I think in general, in the legal context, you have people who have a much more kind of flexible view of what constitutes work and want to have much more flexibility in terms of where they work, how they work, how often they work. And I think to a lot of older people and more experienced people, that seems just really unreasonable and maybe kind of lazy and certainly very entitled. And I think to the younger generation, they view it as, you know, this is my life and I don't want to spend every waking hour working, period. And if I am spending every waking hour working, I definitely don't want to be doing it on behalf of a client or clients that I find morally objectionable. And so you see increasingly a lot of associates at law firms. I've noticed that Jones say you'll have very sought after associates. Maybe they're people who were clerking for a Supreme Court justice come in. The firm is recruiting them very aggressively. And so they have a lot of leverage. And these soon-to-be associates will say, look, I will come on and join your firm, but I want to be basically exempted from working for certain clients or in certain types of cases, for example, tobacco cases or with gun clients, things like that. And that's something that just appalls a lot of the more senior people you talk to at these firms who just think these young whippersnappers like, do not realize how the world works and how institutions make money. I mean, whether or not it's the legal profession, the media, politics, whatever it is, in this country, I will say that I believe that we are in the most dynamic time, a time of the most upheaval that we've seen probably since the end of World War II, right? Change is not easy. Change is often not comfortable. It happens not at all and then all at once, to steal a phrase. And so, yeah, this stuff is going to happen. And there's always going to be that friction and the push and pull between the old and the new. And progress is not, you know, a hundred steps forward and no steps back. It's two and a half steps forward and one step back. And you hope at the end of the day, the step and a half forward you took was the right one. All right. So let's talk about Jones Day and Donald Trump. So Don McGahn, who is a partner at Patton Boggs, goes over to Jones Day. Trump says he's going to run this time, 2015. They take him on. And, you know, they go through and they're there through the election and they're there through the White House. And now you have this revolving door of Jones Day partners, or at least lawyers, I should say, going in and out of the Trump administration. McGahn goes all the way to the White House counsel's office. And now you start to see what is also endemic to Washington, D.C., which is, you know, whether or not it's Wall Street firms, whether or not it's law firms, right, is you have all these people who previously served in government. They were lawyers. They go to government. They go back to the law firm. Then they go to government. And so now you see that, you know, some of these lawyers are standing up for things. They're the solicitor general. You know, they're having impacts. You noted one of the anecdotes about Walmart and opioids. And, you know, that stuff gets shut down. They sent Ivanka Trump right to a Walmart store in Texas where this investigation was stemming from just to sort of make their voices heard. So tell us a little bit about 
Before we get to potential sedition or suborning sedition, tell us a little bit about Jones Day and the Trump administration. Yeah, well, and you describe it as a revolving door. And I think that is a term that gets used a lot in the media and political spheres. And I don't think it quite does justice to what happened here. And Jones Day was representing the 2016 campaign, Trump wins. And there is, are dozens of Jones Day lawyers, both partners and associates, who go from the law firm into the Trump administration. And, you know, the White House Counsel's office is led by Don McGahn. He brings with him maybe eight or 10 of his Jones Day colleagues, all Federalist Society members, all in the White House Counsel's office. There's a couple other people in different places in the White House. There are at least half a dozen or so that go into fairly senior jobs in the Justice Department, including Noel Francisco, who becomes Solicitor General, but a bunch of people in both in the civil division as well that have you know huge power over government investigations and other federal agencies as well. And reasonable people, I think, can disagree or debate how good or bad it is for people to be kind of flitting back and forth between private sector and the public sector. I mean, I think there are some things that are actually helpful about that. But what happened here that I think was just very vivid in a bunch of examples is that senior Jones Day lawyers were going from the firm, arriving at a place like the Justice Department, and then getting involved in cases in which Jones Day was representing a corporate client like Walmart before the Trump administration and the people at the Justice Department who until very recently had worked at Jones Day, are getting involved in ways that are beneficial to Jones Day's clients. And again, even if you accept the argument, which is what they are making, that there's no kind of causation, there's nothing, you know, they didn't violate any ethical rules or anything like that, it still stinks, right? I mean, the whole problem with the revolving door, I think, or a big problem, is it creates a perception that people are getting special treatment because of their access to insiders and that insiders are not acting entirely in the interest of taxpayers because they're still beholden to their once and future employees. And that poses a really big credibility problem for the government. And Jones Day really played this up more than I've seen any other law firm, Wall Street firm, anyone in recent memory. Yeah. And as you said, I think this also perpetuates in its own way the idea for the individual American that the whole thing is cooked. And a lot of times it is. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This is partly perception and it's partly reality. I mean, the Walmart situation, I think, is really instructive. I mean, Walmart was under investigation by federal prosecutors in Texas for its role in distributing opioids, basically with abandon to all these pill mill doctors who were clearly writing thousands and thousands of prescriptions for things like OxyContin. And the Justice Department starts investigating a criminal and civil investigation. Jones Day intervenes at the highest ranks of the Justice Department with people who until very recently had worked at Jones Day. Like months earlier, they had been there. And the criminal investigation gets shut down. And the civil investigation gets kind of put on a back burner. And again, we've seen the letters that Jones Day's partners were writing to their former colleagues inside the Justice Department. Like they were clearly taking advantage of the fact that they knew people inside the administration. And was that illegal? I don't think so. Did it violate any ethical rules? I don't think so. Does it smell bad? It certainly does to me. But I guess this is the question is you talk about ethics like that seems unethical to me now. And I know that in D.C. there's the whole prior relationship thing, which is, again, much like the I can represent anybody because everybody deserves representation. The prior relationship thing, too, is sort of a catch all. Well, I've known this guy for 20 years. We used to work together. But there is, I think, an ethical standard that they're violating. And I wonder if firms like Jones Day and these other ones, but maybe Jones Day in particular, it's not necessarily that they are 
actively going out and finding ways to violate rules or ethics or morality, but they've just so become inured to the idea that they're doing anything wrong that by definition, all of these sort of guardrails, as we think about it, are sort of out the window. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think that's a plausible way of looking at it, though. And certainly what we do know is what actually happened, which is that, you know, they were reaching out regularly to their former colleagues who are now inside the Justice Department at senior levels, and that that communication was helpful to their client in a real way. And certainly to career people and even some political appointees within the Justice Department who were not connected to Jones Day, but witnessed this. I mean, it made them very uncomfortable. And these are not people who are kind of prima donnas about this kind of stuff. These are people who, again, in some cases are pretty hardcore Republicans and who like the Trump administration, but they still found the way that Jones Day was aggressively trying to work its connections inside the administration to make them a little bit uneasy. And if you're trying to insulate yourself as a government or a federal official from the perception that you are playing favorites or that you have kind of dual loyalties, I definitely can think of much better ways to handle a situation than what Jones Day people did, which is that they continue to sit in on meetings and exert pressure on prosecutors in Texas, who in some cases ultimately went public about this, much to the embarrassment of Jones Day. All right. So let's fast forward to a couple of years ago, roughly. It's election night. Arizona is called for Joe Biden, but there are millions of ballots still to be counted in places like Pennsylvania. That's Saturday. I don't remember the exact dates, but the point is by that Saturday, Joe Biden is declared by the media to be the president elect of the United States. He will be the 46th president. And I can tell you sitting where I was on that day that, you know, everybody's very happy, at least from our perspective on that Saturday. On Sunday, I could tell. And Dave, I don't know if it's because I've spent so much time studying these people that the Trump machine was either already in motion or had sped up by Sunday. And so early that following week, Jones Day is involved in places like Pennsylvania and elsewhere. And we, as the Lincoln Project, went after them publicly. And, you know, from our perspective, probably scared them off because we helped generate so much attention, which to your earlier point in the show, they don't like. Which subsequent to that, we found out just a few months back that Mark Meadows sent a memo compiled by who we don't know with my name, Rick Wilson's name, and Stuart Stevens' name on it, to Bill Barr, the Attorney General, on November 11th, saying, here's the Lincoln Project information we discussed. Is it causation? I don't know. Is it correlation? I don't know. But, like, there were a whole bunch of people unhappy, and they were willing to weigh in at the highest levels of American government, the highest level of American government, to potentially threaten somebody that was making their life harder. Subsequent to that, when it turned out that Cleta Mitchell was on this phone call, Cleta Mitchell at Jones Day was on this phone call with Trump trying to pressure Brad Raffensperger to find 11,308 votes. That's all we need, Brad. We made sure everybody knew who she was, too. And so, like, we have a personal relationship in some ways with Jones Day, which is they did some bad things for American democracy, and they employed some people that seemed perfectly willing to say, these are our clients. And we even got some pushback saying you shouldn't go after people's lawyers. Like, Dave, these people are not John Adams. Like, they're not, they're not defending British soldiers for the broader right to understand that everybody has due process before law. They were trying to overturn an election. Maybe it's better to just discuss what actually happened there, because I think it's very revealing. So Jones's primary role in the election litigation was that they were involved in litigation in Pennsylvania over the circumstances in which absentee ballots and mail-in ballots would be counted. 
And Jones Day's argument was that basically this Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that there would be a three-day extension to receive ballots because as it's kind of hard to remember because it feels like it was an eternity ago, but and the mail service had basically stopped functioning as we were accustomed to. Things were going really, really slow. And so the concern was that the ballots were supposed to be received by election day. The concern was that if you stuck with that deadline in the middle of a pandemic, with the mail service being so slow, that would lead to the disenfranchisement of a lot of voters. So Jones Day goes to court to try and stop that extension from being put in place. And they also go to court to try and enforce rules that basically make it easier to disqualify ballots based on signature matching issues. And both of those cases, in the opinions of people who worked on those cases at Jones Day and other people who are both partners and associates at Jones Day, seemed tailor-made to hurt Democrats. And it was mail-in ballots and absentee ballots were expected to heavily favor Democrats. And Jones Day's clients, in this case, were the Republican Party of Pennsylvania. Trump later got involved after the election. And you know, the act of counting votes and giving everyone the right to vote and making sure those votes are tabulated accurately is very core to our democratic process, obviously. And clearly what Jones Day was trying to achieve, regardless of the legal rationale or anything like that, the practical implications of it were that it was going to make it much harder for a great many people's votes to be counted. And that caused a real kind of firestorm within Jones Day and also outside of Jones Day. And you know, Jones Day kind of falls back on the argument that they were litigating legitimate, hard to settle constitutional issues. And there is some truth to that, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they knew full well what the practical implication of what they were doing was. And that was why they were doing it. They wanted to make it harder for likely Democratic votes to count in what was one of the most bitterly contested battleground states in the 2020 election. They do frame this as we zealously represent our clients, however they want to be represented. But I think it is very disingenuous to ignore the practical implications of what they knew they were doing. Or the very real implications of their client, ultimately Donald J. Trump, president of the United States, saying that mail-in voting was rigged and you shouldn't do it. Which, as someone who used to work in Republican politics, was something that Republicans were really, really good at. 100%. And this is, again, this is not something that's like a Democrat versus Republican issue, even within John's day. I mean, there, in the summer of 2020, as Trump's rhetoric about the dangers of fraud and mail-in ballots and the rigged election, as he got more and more amped up about that on the campaign trail, there were people inside the law firm, including prominent Republicans, who were really worried about this and expressed those concerns internally and ultimately expressed them externally as well. And Ben Ginsburg is the person who jumps to mind here, who had been a longtime, very well-respected Republican election lawyer. And so he resigned from the firm, as you know, right before Labor Day in 2020. And he did that after having voiced his concerns to right up to the top of the firm that not just this is stupid politics for Trump to be trying to discourage mail-in voting in the middle of a pandemic, but that the rhetoric he was using risked really staining Jones Day's reputation because Jones Day was continuing to represent him and in fact was continuing to pursue cases that were very well, almost perfectly aligned with the garbage fears that he was fanning about the dangers of fraud in any sort of voting, which is really not a material issue ever. And Jones Day, nonetheless, in legal filings, in at least two Pennsylvania cases that I'm aware of, raised concerns about the integrity of that voting process that are, again, it's not hard to imagine theoretical concerns cropping up. But in practice, as the, I'm sure these lawyers must have known, it's not a real issue. 
there's no systematic problem with voter fraud in this country, at least not affecting elections. There's no reason to think that 2020 would have been any different. And yet they went to the mat trying to push these cases on behalf of the clients that had a very clear interest in votes that went Democratic, not being counted. Where's Jones Day today? I mean, it's probably still a huge firm, still very powerful, still billing lots of money. What's its status today? You know, the million dollar question is whether they are going to work at all for Donald Trump going forward. And I don't know the answer to that. They're still receiving money from various Trump campaign committees, but it's unclear to me whether that reflects new work they're taking on or just kind of cleanup work that remains from this, like the legal apparatus of set up around the 2020 election. What's really clear, though, is that Jones Day has used the notoriety that it got from the Trump work, I think, to its advantage in getting other prominent Republican candidates to work with them. And so in the midterm elections, we saw candidates like Ron Johnson and Kevin McCarthy and Dr. Oz. So a lot of of Trump-affiliated people with Jones Day in their corner. And my guess is that they are going to field a lot of offers from 2024 contenders. And Ron DeSantis' chief of staff is a recent Jones Day alum. And I, I think it is quite likely that that might prophesy what is going to happen with Ron DeSantis' campaign and Jones Day, I would guess. So, you know, they're doing just fine. And I think that they probably lost some clients and they certainly lost a number of partners and associates who were really disgusted with the work that they were doing for Trump and in the run-up and aftermath of the 2020 election. But I think more than that, they have kind of doubled down on the fact that they do not back down in the face of media pressure. They do not back down just because they're taking on unpopular clients. And and they've kind of used that almost as a calling card, I think, to try and win over more clients, whether they be in the political or the corporate spheres, that are engaged in behavior that is increasingly unpopular and kind of out of sync with the mainstream and that other law firms are just not willing to take on. And again, to circle back to the point you made at the beginning, this is not about representing clients who are accused of murder or you know, their customers getting killed. This is about representing a different type of legal representation, like helping people win elected office and helping clients avoid regulations or avoid taxes and things like that, that are services to which there is no clear constitutional entitlement. And I think much of the kind of well-respected corporate bar in this country is certainly gotten much more reluctant and wary providing because it is not something to which clients are automatically obligated to receive. Well, in this particular sphere of Trump and all of this stuff, the normal reaction to trouble or to approbation is to double down. Very rarely, if at all, do they ever come back to the middle and say, I made a mistake, I'm trying to get right. They almost always go further into it. But one last thing as we close here, Dave, the other thread that I think ran through your book that I think is worth exploring, if just briefly, is that there's really a lot of big in this country. There's a lot of big, it controls almost everything, and they get away with nearly all of it. Yeah, that is definitely true. And big law firms protecting big companies and other big institutions, it is just a very unequal system, frankly. And I think one of the reasons lawyers like to say that everyone is entitled to legal representation is because our justice system is based on an adversarial system where, you know, both sides are supposed to be zealously represented. Their cases zealously argued and dispassionate judges and juries kind of sort out fact from fiction and, and settle on truth and justice. And the reality is that adversarial system works if there's some equilibrium between the two sides. And increasingly, the huge concentrated power 
of these giant law firms in the corporate sphere and the political sphere means that equilibrium is long gone. And so you have these huge asymmetrical advantages that the biggest, most powerful companies in the world enjoy over anyone and anything that gets in their way. Yeah, look, I mean, you've mentioned the zealous representation several times. It's the Sixth Amendment, I think, that offers representation. But it's one thing to have a $1,200 an hour litigator on your side. It's another thing to have a public defender who's getting paid 38 grand a year and has 200 cases a week, right? Like that person's doing the best they can under the circumstances, and they'll never be able to do a tenth of the job is the guy who's getting paid a whole hell of a lot of money to sit there and do this day in and day out and, you know, go back to the glass and steel office and, you know, summer in East Hampton. Yeah, that imbalance is, I think, even more pronounced when it comes to people, families or even businesses that are harmed by big companies and their ability to seek compensation or get justice is really severely impaired by this imbalance because, you know, they can hire lawyers who are going to work maybe, you know, on commission essentially, but they are no match for these law firms that have, for all intents and purposes, unlimited time and money. And it just really skews our justice system in favor of those with the most money and power. And that's not good. That's not good. Um, well, Dave, listen, I want to thank you for taking so much time with us today. Tell us where can our listeners find you and your work online? Oh, my goodness. Just Google me. That's the easiest thing. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All right. So find him at the New York Times. And guys, find Dave's new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice, wherever fine books are sold. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. David Enrich, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.